Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 137 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we go deep into the topic of Indigenous people in Canada and their land rights and how this all fits into resource development in the country. Our special guest is Bill Gallagher. He's a strategist, lawyer, and author. He specializes in Indigenous land rights and resource development. Um, For example, he was an advisor to INCO on the development of the Voices Bay nickel mine in Labrador in the 1990s, where they had a very positive impacts and benefits agreement with the local Innu and Inuit there. Bill has a new book out called Resource Reckoning, A Strategist's Guide from A to Z. And this is a follow-up book to his milestone uh, 2012 book, Resource Rulers, Fortune and Folly on Canada's Road to Resources. It's a hot-button issue for sure, and there are so many topics to cover. We had quite a long conversation, so I'm going to break it into two parts. So this is part one. This podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of explorers, developers, and miners with advanced projects in the Yukon. Check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at at investyukon, all one word. Now, the Yukon Mining Alliance, along with the Yukon Territorial Government, They are sponsors of our upcoming Canadian Mining Symposium we're holding in London uh, shortly. Uh, There we'll be having a Yukon-themed panel session that will include Yukon Premier Sandy Silver. So um, in a following um, podcast, somewhere along the line, we'll have that panel for you as well. Before we get into this vast topic of native land rights and resource development in Canada, we have a sponsored message that we call a Mining Minute. this promoted content section, we have part three of Barian Mining CEO, Max Sally. He's talking about his newly IPO'd company, Barian. They're on the TSX Venture Exchange, B-A-R-I. Their Barian is B-A-R-R-I-A-N. And they have their Bolo Gold Asset in Nevada. So take it away, Max. So Sleeper is in a district known as Mogollon in New Mexico with the formerly producing district between, let's say, 1890 and 1945, that district produced 330,000 ounces of gold and about 16 million ounces of silver. Uh, it is all high grade, and that project for us is something we'll probably get working on in 2020. Uh, we are doing some data compilation right now on the project. Uh, we may shoot some geophysics closer to the end of the year. Uh, we have an earned agreement with Allegiant Gold, uh, but the nice thing about that project is there's no spend on that property. That is a million dollars for the stock over three years also, but it doesn't cost us anything to hold that. We've actually paid all the, the fees for those properties. The landowners were fully paid through till 2021, I think, which is nice for us. We made a deal with them. If we paid them up front, we would get a bit of a discount, and that was paid out of all the, the, the seed round money. So all the money raised in the IPO will be focused on, on uh, near-term Rebolo, and then later on, we'll get into the sleeper. We'll take a little musical break and return with strategist, lawyer, and author Bill Gallagher. And we have our in-depth discussion on Indigenous land rights in Canada and what this all means for resource development in the country. 
We're joined today by Bill Gallagher in Waterloo, I believe. Bill, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. First spring day for a long while. Yeah, that's great. And let me just uh, describe Bill to our listeners here. He's a strategist, lawyer, and author. His latest book is called Resource Reckoning, A Strategist's Guide from A to Z, published last year. Back in 2012, I think a landmark book, uh, Resource Rulers, Fortune and Folly on Canada's Road to Resources. So a lawyer and strategist specializing in the land rights of natives in Canada in particular. Would that be a good description, Bill? That's fair ball. That's right. My incentive is to try and provide an information base to get this country up and running. Right. Now, let me just give a broad uh, view of your thesis here, just pulling it out from some of your writing. There is a native legal winning streak in Canada uh, with respect to land rights, whereby natives typically win in the resources sector since they have constitutionally protected land rights that the rest of us don't. My message to government and industry is always the same. Realize that natives are resource gatekeepers in Canada and work them into the project as the key local players that they are. And just something from your latest book here. Uh, Simply put, native land rights now have to be reconciled with industry's property rights. And one last quote here. When I read your book on the weekend, I was underlining just, it's a very quotable, very readable book, so I underline a lot of the book. But another good quote here. Canada is a G8 country at war with itself over access to resources. So there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe just talk about this native legal winning streak with respect to land rights. Yes, and it does flow from the uh, constitutional protections brought on by uh, the patriation of the Constitution by the first Trudeau, mm-hmm. Prime Minister. Yes. And uh, uh, nothing happened for the longest while. And uh, about uh, 15 years ago, like a popcorn machine, the odd kernel would pop up and it would be a a ruling somewhere in the boondocks and uh, that started to gather momentum you know but now jumping forward 10 years it's like the uh, popcorn machine is on full tilt there's all sorts of rulings happening in, in all the jurisdictions of canada it's not an unbreakable winning streak they lose a fair amount yes but overall it is i i call it the biggest winning streak in canadian legal history as of today they top up at 279 legal wins in the Canadian resources sector. And I have a map on my wall here where I have many of the more important ones posted with dots along with eco-activist wins. Yes. And it looks as if uh, somebody you know, dropped a bag of confetti on my uh, 1985 Rand McNally map. Now, when the resource rulers came out, I like, strongly recommended it to anyone in the mining industry who, who deals with uh, First Nations or Aboriginal communities in Canada, just because, uh, well, many reasons, but one is whenever you're in an industry, you're just focused on your own industry so much, or maybe in mining you look a little bit at oil and gas. But this book shows from the Aboriginal community, you know, they're interested in lumber, they're interested in fisheries, pipeline access, agriculture, hydropower. So all these uh, legal uh, precedents, uh, court cases, it's all going on throughout all these industries. So extremely valuable with both of your books is you, you see the whole wide swath of court decisions. And then, yeah, I'm trying to break down uh, the silos that people are in, especially lawyers. Sure. Lawyers yeah. are, are probably the greatest uh, offenders of, of what I call being hidebound, or I use the term uh, legal constipation. Uh, Many cases are fought in jurisdictions that have already been decided in neighboring ones. I could see the, 
I would say the the first book was more like a more like a magazine style writing, where the, the second one was more frustration. <laughs> like you see the it's same thing edgier. happening over and over again. So why yeah. did you it, need it, to write the second book? I'm trying to uh, get the word out that we are uh, turning a corner into a, a very darker place with uh, the, the concept I'm promoting now is the word retrenchment. Mm-hmm. It's as if many jurisdictions have given up on trying to mm-hmm. work these issues out mm-hmm. and, uh, and are basically uh, going back in time. And I, I think uh, we're just at the cusp where there are solutions for this and we, we shouldn't give up. But I think uh, a lot of provinces are bailing on this stuff and uh, things are just going to go into a big decade-long holding pattern. That's pretty much what I'm predicting for the next decade here in Ontario and maybe in Alberta as well, certainly in Manitoba. There are movements afoot that would indicate that the governments are going to try and run it as my way or the highway, Mm -hmm. and uh, that just does not work on the road to resources. Maybe if we could just take a step back and I know in Canada, the urban people, they're just oblivious to Aboriginal issues, but the sort of fundamental uh, laws that are that have been built, got Confederation 1867, the Indian Act of 1876, and then these treaties, I think a lot of Canadians wouldn't quite realize, you know, you look at, at a map of Canada with the provinces, you can look at a map of Canada and there's treaties that have been set up between Aboriginal communities and the federal government, and then no treaties in BC. Can you just explain the uh, framework that has been built and the validity of that framework? Well, it comes from the uh, the way the country was, in in a way, conquered. Not, not not natives weren't conquered, but certainly there were wars of conquest between the English and the French. Mm-hmm. And in eastern Canada, where those wars played out, the victors, the British, did not want to spark a an uprising with natives having just beaten the French. And so they signed treaties that basically said, these do not impact your land rights. These mm-hmm. are peace and friendship treaties. Yes. They're not land treaties. So mm-hmm. down in the Maritimes, we just had an announcement this week where Minister Bennett dropped into uh, Elsie Bucktuck, or Bucktush is called, and there now is our land claim and treaty negotiations going on for one-third of the province of New Brunswick. They've they've come up with some terms of reference. But that goes right back to, you know, 1755. And so those treaties left the land issue as unfinished business. I see. Mm -hmm. As the country started to get settled, there were proper, what I would call a typical numbered treaty, where uh, uh, as the settlers moved from east to west, those treaties got done just in a matter of years before the settlers arrived. In some cases, in Ontario, they would run into railway crews all the time they were negotiating their treaties. So, I mean, it was designed to make way for the colonists, the settlers. And when they ran into the Rocky Mountains, they stopped uh, doing those types of treaties. Simple Mm -hmm. as that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was only the result of the Klondike uh, Gold Rush that the, the northern treaties got done. And that was, that was to spur access to the gold fields. So the Treaty Map of Canada is very much a product of the history that we're taught. Yes. And uh, in, because we're so unique with the, the French fact, there are the two versions of Canadian history. There's the English 
the, the victor's version. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the, the French version that is best encapsulated in their license plate, Je me souviens. Yes. And I'm coming along and basically saying, hey, there's a third version. And as Canada has gotten more and more complex in the resources sector, I'm saying you don't have to necessarily believe the third version, but you should be aware of it. And if you put it in the mix, I'm able to make predictions based on the fact that you can connect more dots on what's happening on a given project if you apply the native lens, the native version of history and the socioeconomic impacts that are playing out. And I stand by that. That's the big thing that I've proven, Mm -hmm. is that there's this third way of looking at things. And in fact, it's sometimes the most uh, elucidating way of understanding things. Now, looking since the repatriation of the Constitution, what milestones would you say are there in the legal sense with uh, land rights with First Nations and Aboriginal groups? Well, the, uh, the, the biggest change is the fact that, you know, this, and this, this goes, this is not a legal concept. The biggest change is that the traditional knowledge and the lore, the folklore, that's as relevant as hard factual evidence hmm. when it comes to negotiating with First Nations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the quip I would use is that guy on the back of the skidoo, you know, I've seen it they can out-negotiate Bay Street nine times out of ten. Right. And that's the lesson for the legal community. It's just, it's just beyond their ability to process the fact that uh, some guy can get off a skidoo, carry the argument. But you have to be open to that if you want to be able to even present your side of the story. They have an important way to present their evidence, their... Uh, their traditional knowledge is constantly being firmed up by modern science. Mm-hmm. When a group of scientists from Quebec spent the summer traipsing around following the caribou with the, the northern Innu, they were met with reporters at the, at the getting off the plane, and they said they were humbled by the experience of mm-hmm. what they learned from the elders. Mm-hmm. And these were all like uh, serious you know, uh, veterinarians and, and researchers. Right. And, and so this is the big lesson for lawyers is to uh, show humility on, on all that stuff that you don't know, because none of it's taught in law school. Right. I guess you talk, you don't quite say the, about people working in bubbles, but you, you throw in a bunch of people, PR firms, you call the bot media, the business media, corporate law firms, advisory firms, academic lawyers, think tanks, the sort of GTA, uh, Toronto crowd. How do they... <laughs> You have, yeah, they don't stack up. You have withering the criticism. Question is, how group. do they stack up? Yeah. They don't. It's just a, a sad fact that this, uh, w- when a project gets in trouble, this is the group that is typically turned to, and that's because the responsible governments uh, want to keep control, and right. so they go to a former judge or a former politician. You know, nothing too radical is going to happen, and nobody's going to be embarrassed, and basically. Uh, this is just more process, very little substance, and typically those projects just peter out. They just don't, uh, they, they, nobody comes out ahead. Right. There's a, this, I call it roadkill on the road to resources. Yes, I'm tough on that. I'm tough on think tanks. The premise of all of this stuff is that people are in silos, and silos kill projects. Right. 
and an easy first step out of the silo would be reading your two books, I would say. And what other things can people do to get out of their silos? If... Well, the, uh, the situation now, and this is why my second book is much edgier, Mm-hmm. The situation now has gone beyond where all the middle ground was manageable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot. There's a fair amount of hardening of attitudes yes. on both sides now, as a result of the winning streak, the rise of native empowerment, the merging of the eco-activist agenda with the protectors of Mother Earth, and, and now it's it's much tougher to find middle ground where a project has run afoul of eco-activists or uh, native activists. Mm-hmm. And so I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm basically saying this is our last chance to, uh, to pull things back and to salvage projects because now people are so empowered that uh, they're holding out for some substantial fundamental change in the way this country is run. Mm-hmm. And as we're finding out, that's not going to happen. Like when Jody Wilson-Raybould exited her portfolio in the Justice Department, the window closed on what I would call a a significant rapprochement on acknowledging Native rights in a fundamental way that could have been a breakthrough. It's the biggest missed opportunity since I've been following these issues for the last 25 years. It turns out in my world, Jody Wilson-Raybould's biggest fight was not about SNC-Lavalin. She had uh, all the laggards in the Department of Justice, you know, boxing her in on her native, on her indigenous rights framework. And that spilled over into the Prime Minister's office and the Privy Council office. And in fact, when she met with the clerk of the Privy Council over lunch to discuss things, the SNC-Lavalin issue only came up at the end. Hmm. The bulk of the discussion had to do with what's not happening on her indigenous rights framework. I see. And you described uh, the Stephen Harper era as a systemic stagnation. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Uh, Stephen Harper, uh, who, who I, I, have a, I certainly don't mean to demean him, uh, I think I, he's deserving of a lot of respect for a, a lot of his policies. Mm-hmm. But on the native file, he simply had a, a deaf ear or, or, or was uh, tone deaf to what was going on in the country. The bulk of the native legal winning streak happened on his watch, and it was read out of the script by his government. Right. And so uh, that, that 10-year period is, is in effect, a, a system, I call it systemic stagnation. And uh, th- th- this is where uh, the level of frustration, and, and Trudeau comes along, he's aware of all of this, but he tended to overpromise. Mm-hmm. And now he's finding out that the promises have all gone up in smoke, I still think he was well-intentioned. Yes. Uh, he might have even have been a bit naive. But now he's running out of gas, too. Mm-hmm. The, all of his policies, have none of them have crossed the uh, finish line, coming up to a federal election. And the only policy that's still even in play is Romeo Saganash's bill on the United Nations uh, Declaration of Indigenous Rights. And that was an, a private member NDP bill which the liberals co-opted and backed. But apart from that, everything else is dead. One thing that always I find a little curious, people will often sort of, I would say, not throw it out, but say we need to just repeal the Indian Act. You yourself say this, abolish the Indian Affairs Department. They've changed the name a few times, but it's still the same department. Especially repealing the Indian Act. Why has that never happened? Because that's often called for. 
It's never happened because the organization that has the most clout as to the fate of the Indian Act is the Assembly of First Nations. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they talk a good game, like, yes, we could work with a with the government to repeal it or to improve it. But at the end of the day, they're married to it. Mm-hmm. it it's the equivalent of their license plate. Yes. It's, a, it's something they can point to that represents the colonial era. And it, uh, it also is the, the source of funding for them. And, uh, you know, apartment towers, business towers in Europe that don't have the 13th floor because it's bad luck. Mm-hmm. Well, notionally speaking, if you went to the office tower in Ottawa and found how to get off at the 13th floor, you would see them all running around in the Indian Affairs building. I, I mean, that, that's how close they are, metaphorically huh. speaking, to the power center, mm-hmm. and it's all through the Indian Act. So they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Mm-hmm. And, and they voted down just a few, three, three or four months ago, the AFN, Resolution Number 25, voted down Jody Wilson-Raybould's attempt to bring forward an indigenous rights framework. So I'm I'm on their case as well. I mean, as Canadians, we are entitled to expect some legitimate progress on reconciling all these issues, property rights, aboriginal rights, environmental rights, and to get these projects back and getting some, some opportunities back into this country based on our resources heritage. It's just unbelievable the extent to which it's gone gone overboard. Right. And you are, of course, a strategist as well. There was a funny thing, the the previous election there with, um, oh, Thomas Mulcair. Thomas Mulcair, His his speaking points were often right out of resource rulers. I found that very interesting. Well, it turns out he, uh, well, just to your listeners, out of the blue, Thomas Mulcair invited me uh, last month to come to Montreal this month, and oh. I'm going to be there in two weeks' time, to give a keynote lecture at the University of Montreal. Oh, okay. uh, he was greatly moved by uh, resource rulers. Yes. Uh, he had me out to give a presentation to his entire caucus in Edmonton oh. on, on my research mm-hmm. prior to the last election. Oh, I see. He had the best platform. The liberals stole it, holus bolus. <laughs> and, and in the energy debates leading up to the uh, election with a three leaders were debating, he actually referred to the concept of resource rulers in one of his answers. Right. So just of interest to you, since we're both independent researchers, you're yes. a researcher, you you're a, a, have a major portal in terms of information, mm-hmm. it just shows that one person can make a difference, you know, in, in how the country works and how the media works. Yeah. And so he was a breakthrough for, for me and resource rulers. He found it useful and basically, the NDP still uh, are probably the, the most practical in terms of having solutions on how to solve this problem. And I'm going to tell you what his solution would have been. Mm-hmm. Had he became prime minister, he would have put a native secretariat directly right in uh, the prime minister's office to feed in on all issues dealing with resources. Mm-hmm. And instead, uh, we didn't have that under Trudeau. We had a, a clerk and uh, a couple of backroom operatives that called the shots, and we, we now know uh, that uh, how, how that worked out for everybody. Right, right. Yeah, well, my ears certainly perked up when I heard Tom Smolkar speaking. He's like, that's right out of resource world. So, yeah, that's interesting, the connection there. Now, 
you're not just on the sidelines commenting. You were a an advisor to Inco with the Voices Bay development. Could you just speak about that? This is something that worked out really well and you know basically problem free. The mine's been running. Could you just ex- they've ex- gone underground about, and yeah. Could you just talk about your whole experience advising with the uh, First Nations there? Well, I could. I can say this: that that was uh, <laughs> the reason I rail against uh, the GTA and former politicians and former deputy ministers is that was the first team that went in, brought in by INCO, based uh, on that file in St. John's. Mm -hmm. And I literally had to wait them out. Every one of them had to end up in a career-ending train wreck before (laughs) things got so bad that this guy back in Ontario who had been pestering them came clearly into focus, and uh, I I had my chance to, uh, to join the team. And walking up the steps of their office building... I said to the CEO, I said, uh, I know you've just uh, had the office shut down and everybody sent home. Where should I pick an office? He said, well, you've got two floors to pick from. I don't want you beside me, but you can find somewhere not too far away. Yes. I mean, that's how bad things were on the INCO file, on the Voices Bay file. Oh, boy. But the provincial government went on to run two provincial elections back-to-back. One of the mantras was, leave it in the ground, boy. And, uh, you know, they ran these radio programs, VOCM, every morning, slagging Inco. Oh and it turns out that uh, had the Muskrat Falls strategists mm-hmm. followed the lessons learned from Voices Bay, they wouldn't have stepped into it on sure. their own project. Yeah. And so Voices Bay is paying the bills down there in Newfoundland. The, you know, the uh, Muskrat Falls is a boondoggle, according to the CEO. Yes. And the, and the offshore oil play is yet to return the revenue levels that Newfoundlanders were expecting or hoping for. And so Voices Bay, it took two years mm-hmm. to win the trust of the two native groups. One yes. was Inuit, the other was Innu. Mm-hmm. But once we got their public affirmation that they would do business with Inco and that we could have access to the site, it was like a dam had broke. There would just be... Uh, when I give presentations on this, I bring the newspapers with me, and I basically say, here's the two-year, you know, wandering in the desert, mm-hmm. working, working, meeting at carousels and airports and trying to get an IBA firmed up. But once we did that, when that became something that First Nations members were prepared to initial, then the land claim deals, the deals with the province, the deals on revenue sharing, they just came bang, bang, bang after the breakthrough with First Nations. And that's where I proved the formula that First Nations are indeed gatekeepers, resource gatekeepers. They're far more important. If, you, if you've got a limited budget, if you're a prospector and you can afford a trip to, to St. John's or a, a plane ticket to Labrador, I can tell you flat out, go to Labrador, that that's a far more important business visit than the one to St. John's. Right, and these deals have stood the test of time. They so, stood the test of time, and, uh, they, and First Nations leaders now speak uh, <laughs> glowingly of the history of Voices Bay. It's a lot of selective memory would be <laughs> at sure. work. Yes. But that just goes to show that that's, who the, uh, that's your insurance policy mm-hmm. if you're a resource promoter or developer. Yes. It's the First Nations. If you're looking for regulatory certainty and insurance, it's the only person's that can provide it are uh, uh, indigenous peoples. And so I have this 
grid that I use in my presentations mm -hmm. where I have all the other players who, who have an agenda at work. There's eco-activists, there's church groups, there's Amnesty International, they go right around, there's provincial governments, federal governments, the Environmental Assessment Review, other stakeholders. And I postulate the theory that whoever aligns with natives, whoever merges their agenda, will secure that particular outcome of the project, mm -hmm. for or against. So if the eco-activists get there first and merge their agenda, your project's at much more risk. It looks like a spider web. That spider web theory has proven the test of time. Right. So it, I, I basically, as a strategist, strongly counsel the, the proponent getting that to, to merge its agenda with the uh, First Nation as a starting point. That's right. the critical the critical point of departure. Mm -hmm. Going back a sec, why do you think there's kind of this amnesia in Newfoundland Labrador that they bungled Muskrat Falls, the, the power station there? What happened? Why would they forget when they knew the secret, as it were, the secret sauce? Well, it, it, they had to really work hard at forgetting because they had turned out a couple of major reports. After Voyages Bay, they held a, a royal commission as to how do we want to deal with our resources in the future. And they... They went and studied Labrador extensively mm -hmm. uh, and had all sorts of native input. And they're in their energy surveys and their Royal Commission and their energy plan, three documents, there are clear warnings from Labrador not to screw around with the Lower Churchill Falls watershed. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're already paying the, the price of, of the, uh, the major Churchill Falls deal from the 70s. And there was a very high intolerance and frustration about more hydropower development. But Danny Williams was running on a totally different bandwagon. He unleashed the dogs of Newfoundland nationalism. He mm. was hauling down flags and he was, yes. uh, you know, using nasty sound bites towards Ottawa. And he got the, the Bay Boys all worked up and, and basically they got themselves pointed in a direction to make sure that Quebec was denied any opportunity to have a hand in the advancement of the lower Churchill, yes. even though they're partners in the upper Churchill. It's hard to believe. Mm -hmm. And that's where they just got bent out of shape and uh, lost control of the project, and they forgot about Native issues. They, they thought they had them in hand, but they forgot about local stakeholders and Métis issues and uh, Nunatukavut issues, the Inuit of the southern Labrador, and all those issues have come back to bite them. It's right. just a, and, you know, there's a bit of an I told you so there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a after what we went through at INCO, it's hard to believe that these are tough lessons learned by a have-not province. Yes. Now, in your role as a strategist, this, this may be a little more esoteric, but I, I would think there, there are some dangers here. I would call them like prisons of the mind, where, say, on the government side, dangers of a remnant colonial mindset, and then from the native groups, uh, the dangers of victim mentality. You t warn about the dangers of excess sympathy for government negotiating um, land rights. Could you just explain some of those sort of uh, almost psychological pitfalls? Well, there's a huge there's huge psychology mm -hmm. in involved in putting a strategy together. Yes, and you know I used to be a treaty negotiator on the prairies, so I've dealt with all sorts of lawyers and government officials in different capacities. Mm -hmm. on, on modern-day treaty, 
or on a colonial-era grievance or on opening up uh, offshore Beaufort Sea, uh, you know, to, to offshore drilling and that sort of stuff. And I would sometimes say in amazement to myself, you know, if this guy said what he just said at a treaty table, they'd be putting them on the next plane out, right. you know? Yes. And so the key to a proponent's approach is to show humility and deference and to keep it to business. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, actually, it's, it, it can be clean and uncluttered. First Nations don't want to hear a version of history from a businessman. Yes. They're likewise interested in a business deal. They're superb negotiators, mm-hmm. and they are going to maximize whatever leverage they have. And so there were times on the Voices Bay negotiations where the, the Native side would get carried away or our side would get carried away, and I would, I would interject and say, folks, this is not a treaty table. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah, save that for your next session. Yes. You know, we're, we're here to negotiate a contract and a, that respects your land rights. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of freight and a lot of baggage, and a strategist has to unload a lot of that stuff before you go in the room. Right, right. I think a good example of a business like uh, First Nation would be the Taltan in the Golden Triangle area of BC. The very business. That's right. They're all business. That's exactly right. And and you have to be very respectful mm-hmm. of how they conduct business because they don't give a they don't give players a second chance. Right. You know, if they, I mean, they drummed out the, the shell. You know, they've they've had any number of protests on at the arrivals who, who came in waving a permit saying. You know, we're here to talk. You know, we got a permit from Victoria. Like, right. big deal. Yeah. And that you, you have fortune with uh, Mount Clopin chased out. The, the Taltan said, no, this is our, we like this area. We don't want you touching it. And then they're ready to work with Imperial Metals at uh, Red Chris. So that, that seems like a very businesslike approach to the whole thing. That's right. And, and, so, and, and the mistakes that are made at the front end sometimes are unforgivable. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you know, there's a, so there are, there are miners uh, who are still, doing business the hard way in B.C., but there's also some who are very skilled and have First Nations do all their sound bites for them, that new Afton mine. Mm-hmm. They, they figured it out. They, they put First Nations out front and center. Yes. Of course, the, the, the major proponent of doing business th- that way is, is Hydro-Quebec. Mm-hmm. Hydro-Quebec are actually in the unique position when they get an incoming missive from a, uh, a pissed-off uh, eco-activist group they can hand it over to the Cree to respond to. Ah, mm-hmm. Basically say, we're on board. We've looked at this from your perspective. We know what we're doing. We don't need any lessons from you folks. And they just these, these issues just get nipped in the bud. Right. And I should say to our listeners outside Canada, you had this uh, Pas des Braves, the Peace of the Braves, in yeah, 2002. Right. It was all related to the Hydro-Quebec power dam construction. So they, they had multi-billion dollar settlements. So everything was settled so the power construction could go ahead and that selling the power down to New York State, that kind of thing. So it's been, you know, relatively peaceful uh, in Quebec uh, in the north since 2002, at least. Well, that's right. On this map that I have here hanging on the wall, it's the region with the less confetti, right? Uh, uh-huh. uh, because they, uh, they were able to literally bury the hatchet, that's mm-hmm. the expression they use, because they had a, a very nasty conflict and a, a, a huge marketing war going on, mm-hmm. taking on all comers on their traditional lands. Yes. And it was the separatist government of Quebec that made the deal, mm-hmm. which is quite unique uh, in the sense that 
they realized that they would not be taken seriously internationally if they had this human rights issue on their doorstep. And so they had an incentive in terms of their own credibility to rewrite the deal. Mm -hmm. And I, I maintain that Canada has to do that on a national stage. I've been promoting something called a First Nations National Energy Strategy, mm -hmm. which involves a revenue-sharing arrangement right off the bottom line from Ottawa to First Nations mm -hmm. as acknowledgement and a revenue stream to have them lighten up on the access aspect and to be more open to resource development. Right, right. And just one more example of the Quebec, uh, you have the Stornoway Diamond construction, the, yes, the, the, the Cree the there. Under yeah, the, these, are, these are companies that have all uh, have not missed a step. They've read the tea leaves the right way. And, uh, you know, the, the reality is, it's like night. I just had a prospector based in Montreal who works in uh, Ontario as well as Quebec, and he says it's like night and day, you know, hmm. uh, progressive in Quebec and regressive in Ontario. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Next episode, we'll wrap up with part two of our conversation with Bill Gallagher. Thanks again to our episode sponsors, the Yukon Mining Alliance and Barian Mining. As always, you can help out the podcast, expand its reach by liking it, sharing it, commenting on it, subscribing to it. All those things help out the podcast. That's it for now. Have a good week, and we'll speak again later. Bye-bye.